Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. It's V, the Gorilla Economist, and I'm with CJ. He's working the airwaves live from Palm Springs, California. He is at the annual Trump Green Jacket Tour, where he just right now, after winning on the 18th hole, threw a bottle of vaccines on Trump and cursed him out and walked out of there. (laughs) Told him that he was doing a terrible job draining the swamp, and that JFK Jr. is not alive. And so right now he's back with us after winning the golf tournament over at Mar-a-Lago, and uh, he's working the airways. We have with us the man of the hour who needs no introduction. If you don't know who this gentleman is, you are clearly living under a rock, a schmock, a basement, or a bunker somewhere in un- some undisclosed part of the world. It is the one and only Matthew Arrett. He is the geostrategic geohistorical mastermind the brain trust right here on roguenews.com and he is with canadianpatriot.org canadianpatriot.org as well as the rising tide foundation.net and folks if you haven't done so already you need to get matthew Eric's book the clash of two americas volume one two and three get all three it is critical for you to have this to understand who the hell we really are because we don't know. We don't know. We as Americans, we don't know. Why? Because Hollywood lied to us for 50 years and we fell asleep at the wheel. So we have we have historical amnesia. Matthew Eretz's books is the medicine that reverses the historical amnesia and stupor that we're all under. Get it for yourself. Get it for your family. Get it for your friggin' kids if they want to understand American history. This is a piece of literature and a, and a work that I will be passing on to my kid so when she grows up, she understands the true history of everything. And I, for one, am thankful for Matthew for, for writing this. It's, it's, it's that, that's how awesome and how serious I am about his work. So with that Dude. being said, the one and only incomparable Matthew Eretz. V, nobody does an intro like you, man. Nobody. No, I, tr- <laughs> no. I try, man. You know, I you try. Do. I, I really appreciate that. It's it's very authentic. I I'm very moved. And honestly, look, actually, the um, there's gonna be a fourth book too. We're um, we're, we're setting the keep writing them out. Keep writing, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna do something on the uh, the British origins of the deep state with with a little bit more thorough detail to put some more meat on the bones of like what is the British Empire today? How was what was the British Empire since it, it has a very different character than what history books and, and Hollywood movies have passed down to us. Um, it always was something very different and very evil, but also not very British because at the end of the day, and I'm going to go through this in my book, is how did this parasite 
impose itself onto England in the first place. And a lot of people right. don't even know this, that England, it's at a certain point, you know, like they weren't intrinsically bad. They, there was a lot of good. And in fact, you could say that the American Revolution was an English revolution, but it was the better part of the British character, the British traditions, sure. or I should say English, that um, that the colonists represented around Ben Franklin, who was himself, you know, he saw himself as a, as a British citizen, and uh, as did many of the founding fathers. And they just simply recognized that the hellfire rot that had taken control over a century or more since the Glorious Revolution, especially, but it had been going on before that, was something that couldn't be redeemed at a certain point. They had tried to save, to, to transform the character of, of Britain from within. Ben Franklin tried so hard. He didn't really want a revolution right away. Um, he was working hard to try to like work with, with like-minded thinkers who were still trying to revive and undo the disaster that was the Republican Revolution. Because Britain, before America became a republic, Britain was a republic for, for 10 years, right? Under um, Cromwell. And in the 1640s, they actually they cut off the head of uh, Charles I, which is a, a foreboding bad omen uh, for Charles III, that his namesake, that he might fall the way of, of his namesake, since he's also running roughshod over the lives of the people and giving them no good reason to love him. Um but they, they instituted a real republic. Now, the, the, it was a messy deal. It was a, it was a mess because they it was like plucking underripe fruit. They didn't prepare the groundwork culturally. You had a lot of reactionaries um, in, in power structures as well as good people. And ultimately, after a decade, it turned into an ungovernable mess. And the monarchy was restored. The Bank of England was soon set up after the Glorious Revolution, right? And that was really a Venetian takeover. So in the book series, I'm going to go through a little bit. How did the Venice, the, the Venetian oligarchs use their fifth colonists that had been embedded within England, um, who had em empowered themselves around Lord John Churchill um, in order to create what was called the Venetian party and then take over and transplant this, this beast into Britain itself, such that this became such a, a nasty global empire soon thereafter that the American colonists broke free. And I see that you pulled up a little uh, reporting that uh, we just got through. <laughs> we have live folks, the BBC reporting yeah. on the demise of her great royal highness, the one and only German Goth, a.k.a. Queen Elizabeth II. Here we go. The weeping announcer, the doleful music, the slow movement of the cortege. It was all intensely choreographed. <laughs> This is a difficult moment for dictatorship. The succession has now passed peacefully to the third generation of the family business, but it's a worrying inheritance all the same. This year hasn't been a good one for dictators. This is the weird, reclusive figure who ran the world's most secretive country and did it as though it was his own private property. Looking on was his son, who's around 28, no one knows for sure. He'll take over. And this is where the money which might have been spent on better living conditions actually goes. <laughs> Select few talk to camera. It doesn't exactly sound spontaneous. Snow is falling like tears, he says. How could the heavens not cry when we've lost our general, who was a great man from the heavens? Along with the army, the country's media is perhaps the institution most responsible for keeping their leaders in power. A myth-making factory 
focused around the country's ruling family. That is, for most of its audience, their only source of news. Still, the son has the right credentials. The elite know that they need him. They need a blood descendant for their legitimacy. Once they lose that, they're in trouble. <laughs> no one knows what'll happen to the country now. <laughs> for anybody that is who is so appropriate. Oh, that was so well done. For anybody who might be listening and not watching the visuals, uh, what you just saw was uh, an overlaid BBC coverage of the death of Kim Jong Il a few years back. That was overlaid with imagery of the Queen's funeral procession, and <laughs> it was just so well done. Oh, that was perfect. That was perfect. I love it. I love it. That's so good, yeah. man. But that just goes to show you, you have this 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 uh, this monarchy that many Westerners were thinking is just symbolic and just a figurehead and doesn't uh, have any power, but completely forgetting that this monarchy has the ability to stop and suspend and dissolve parliament in every Commonwealth country that is in the uh, British Empire. And this monarchy that is just a figurehead is the largest landholder in the world with 6.6 billion acres under its power. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and, and we, for those who might have missed it, we went through this uh, last week uh, in some thorough detail. The, um, but, yeah, this is, this is really, it's one of those things. where I remember when I was a kid, um, my father told me, or he, he was at the grocery store, and he asked me, hey, do we have any orange juice? And I, I looked in the fridge, and I was so sure that we didn't have orange juice. And I looked in the fridge, I looked it up and down, and I was like, no, we don't. So he went and he bought orange juice. He got he got home and he, he goes to the fridge to put the orange juice in. And, and sure enough, right there, right in front, top front and center was a giant full keg of orange juice and not keg, a big bottle. And that was a big wake up call for me about how beliefs and perceptions um, are, are how a, belief, a false mm. belief can contaminate even physical uh, sense perception that I wow. didn't see it right there because I believed so strongly that we didn't have any. And that was like an early, very innocent a discovery of this fact, but you see this all over the place. And in Canada, you know, the queen is, is registered as our head of state. Um, it's on our money. Every single coin you, you use and every dollar or not every, but the dollar bills we use, everything in the Commonwealth countries has the queen right there front and center. They call them crown. The bank of Canada is called a crown corporation. We've got crown corporations. We call, we've got crown lands all over the place. We use the terms in our speech. It's right in front of our face. And yet, most people have no clue that this thing is even there. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's so in your face that, you know. It's nuts. Yeah. Like, I, I, it, it, it's crazy. Like, if, if, if I was living, if I was visiting North Korea and I saw, you know, Kim Jong-un's fat face plastered all over the place, plastered all over the money, plastered all over, like, I, I mean, it's like my bat, your, your hat, if you're doing wallpaper, you have no choice but King Jong-un's face's wallpaper in your own house. I would not think for one second, hey, this guy has no power and influence. Imagery is influence, and influence is power. And here we are in the Western world, in many Commonwealth countries, where this woman's face is not only plastered on every fiat currency that they print, but also on the metal bullion that their private crown mints mint out. And they think this yeah. is just all symbolic. There's nothing symbolic about it. It's remarkable, Matthew. Oh, yeah. And it, it's, you know, in, in all fairness, I, I, I don't think people say it's all symbolic. Yeah, like, but I, there might be an element of truth in the sense that the, the person of Charles the, the 
King Charles or uh, or the Queen might not be at the helm of decision making influence in the globally extended deep state. However, they they do play much more aggressive and active of a role in things than people imagine. I mean, there, there's evidence of this going back in history. I mean, here in Canada, we had a uh, a prime minister uh, for about five years who was probably one of the few only noble um, populist prime ministers ever elected who was not a uh, an agent of, of Malthusian um, ideology named John Diefenbaker. And John Diefenbaker was unfortunately a monarchist. He believed in the royal... The, the British Empire's own propaganda about how they have spread culture and civilization to the world. So he believed that surface romantic crap and really thought it was awesome that we were under a monarchy. And he explained in his autobiography how he didn't understand why it was that all of his policies from the nationalization of the Bank of Canada, the utilization of the bank to fund infrastructure development, to open up the Arctic, to build all sorts of wonderful projects that would leap us really into the 21st century back in the 60s. And he was overlapping with JFK. And uh, and they were really solid policies. Like this is a, he takes a big chunk of my, my volume three of the Untold History of Canada, but he writes in his autobiography how he doesn't understand it, why it failed. What was going on? What was sabotaging it? And he was like, he doesn't see the folly because he also said in that same breath, I was privileged that I received personal briefings from Her Majesty the Queen herself every week that gave me a proper sense of what to do and how to go about uh, putting into effect my policies. But, but something kept sabotaging me and I don't understand what. <laughs> and Jesus this is the cool. You know, he was really getting an active. He believed that she was a brilliant geostrategic genius that, and she really had a hands-on effect uh, interfacing with this guy and uh, setting him up for failure. Um, so there, there is an active agency there, but in the same measure, Sometimes it gets overblown. Either these two extremes. People say it has no influence or it has the dominant, like the queen is the dominant force making all decisions. And neither one is true. There are handlers. There is a network built up around the institution of the crown per se. And that's more important. That, it, you know, you, you sometimes you might get a smarter person who's more disciplined. Like I think Elizabeth was pretty disciplined compared to her disastrous you know, pedophilia connected children or even husband Philip, who were much more, I mean, just look at the disaster that is Charles or especially Andrew, or I mean, Philip would speak off the cuff about wanting to kill black people uh, periodically for, you know, 40, If I was only a virus, Matthew, then I can come back and kill all the blacks. Yeah, that, stuff like that. Or, and the I, indigenous I, peoples as well. I was reading a quote where, yeah, this guy was saying, like, uh, you know, the more the more people there are, the more pollution they will create, the more fighting they will do. And thus, the only way to solve these problems is to curb and lower global population. And if it is not done voluntarily, it will be done involuntarily. And he, like, went out and said this stuff in public interviews, not disciplined. Whereas the queen, it's hard to find any type of um, remarks of that sort. She was much more, I guess, stoically able to keep it together. <clears throat> even though I'm sure she did the most insidious things. <laughs> I don't think she, her hands were in any way uh, clean of the perversions that we, we know her children were also were guilty of. That being said... Um, she's only consumed the heart of infants, Matthew. She's completely innocent that of everything else. might very well be true. I, I'm, not, I'm not close to that possibility at all. How do you think she survived to 99 years old? She definitely... How old was she? 96? 90 something right yeah jeez louise man 
Yeah, now these guys are definitely getting medical treatment that your average uh, Joe citizen does not have access to. I, I'm quite yeah. sure. Uh, how else is Kissinger still, you know, <laughs> crawling away, somehow still functional at the age of 100? Um, no, I, I'm pretty sure that they're they're being given something. But all that to say, um, the institution of the crown is more key. You know, and you start getting into, this is where you start getting into the deeper continuity of the structures of of the actual global deep state. You know, if you didn't have the, the crown, you'd have a doge. And as Benjamin Disraeli even said, the former prime minister in the 1880s or 1870s, he wrote this down saying that, you know, um, the thing you, he even said, Britain operates under the Venetian doge system. And just like Venice had one figure. Could, you, could you break that down? Because you just said Venetian doge. And there's going to be people that listen to this and thinking you're talking about some doge sort of coin. derivative of dogecoin <laughs> from <laughs> from Italy. <laughs> yeah, right. No, the, the Venetian um, doge. doge. Yeah, the do- So here's the thing. The quote him, that he actually wrote down is um, George the first was a doge. Jo- George the second was a George, uh, doge. George the third tried not to be a doge, but ultimately couldn't break from his Venetian constitution. These were the three subsequent kings who were. Um, and for those that don't know, the doge means duke. Yeah, the doge is the Venetian word for duke, and this was the the at the heart of the pyramid of the organizing principle of how of the Venetian system of governance, which was the center command point for about eight hundred years after the collapse of the Roman Empire. You had branches of the bloodlines and the and oligarchical institutions in a variety of places. Some had organized themselves after Rome collapsed again in uh, the Holy See um, around the institution of the papacy. Other groupings had organized themselves in uh, the Eastern Roman Empire that had preserved itself from collapse while the Western side melted down. Um, but the most insidious elements, including all of the, the, the techniques of cult creation, intelligence gathering, and um, I mean, there was a, a retweaking of some of the, the mystery religions uh, of Rome into Venice. And Venice be- in, the, in the lagoons became the reconstructed uh, center of command of the, of the Roman Empire, or at least the worst elements of the Roman Empire. And they were sort of acknowledged as being part of the, or a junior partner to the, the Byzantine Empire for a few centuries. But they were much more good at being evil than the figures around Byzantium were. And at a certain point, after orchestrating uh, several major crusades, and also within the context of the chaos of the crusades, which destroyed the alliances of various cultures, East and West, you know, you had looking at the ninth century, you know, there was a period of renaissances in the Muslim world around the, the, the Abbasid dynasty of Harun al-Rashid who had, and it's called the, the Abbasid uh, Renaissance. There was a point of, of explosion in discoveries, longevity, product, uh, productive powers of the people living in uh, the Muslim world. Uh, you, but this also didn't go by itself. It wasn't in a vacuum. You had Charlemagne's Carolingian dynasty as well. Charlemagne, Charlemagne was part of a process of of instituting Augustinian Platonic reforms through the education system, the training of orphans to develop skills, classical literature, literacy per se, and also internal improvements. And all of this was initiated throughout the the 8th century and into the 9th century by Charlemagne's father, grandfather, and even one of his kids. But they did this together with their Muslim counterparts, and together they organized peace treaties, um, you know, like to avoid a, a calamitous religious war, a sort of clash of civilizations that was being funded or orchestrated by these um, 
these financiers at the time were primarily around the, um, like I said, both Venice, but also the, the, the Vatican, um, around what's called the ultramontane papacy. They wanted to just destroy this, this alliance of cultures and they wanted to create a crusade. Now to get around that, um, Harun al-Rashid sent a peace delegation um, to Charlemagne with a giant elephant that Charlemagne rode and loved for like 20 years, uh, basically saying with a deed, okay, we're just going to give give you Jerusalem. We're going to give you the Holy Land. And they gave him the deed to the Holy Land. And, they, and Harun said, you know, we as the Muslim people will protect it and defend it for you, but it is yours. So no need to fight us. And that gave Charlemagne the out he needed to avoid the war. But most importantly, this was also the, the end zone for the revived uh, Belt and Road Initiative. So at that same time, you had the Tang Dynasty, which had revived the Belt and Road, or at the time it was called the New Silk Road, or the Silk Road, uh, after it had fallen into disarray and disrepair, uh, you know, in, in 210 AD, when the Han Dynasty collapsed. So, it, you know, China, just like Europe, went into chaos, division, you know, wars of, of conquest and, and discord. And then when the Tang Dynasty came into play in, in six, um, 680, I believe, they revived the Silk Road policy of east-west trade and cooperation, which which had conduits through the, the Abbasid dynasty of, of the Muslim world into Charlemagne's Europe, but also north northward as well into another dynasty, which had set up that has been slandered and skewed and written uh, out of history almost, or if it, if it is talked about, it is treated like it is a center of evil, which is Khazaria. And that was a Jewish kingdom. So you had a, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jewish kingdom. As well the Khazars. The Khazars, yes. And the, and, the, and the Chinese, Confucian, and Buddhists. So all of these civilizational forces were all working together around benefiting the lives of people. And you had Jews and Christians and Muslims working together in houses of wisdom. In Baghdad, you had the same thing going in Narbonne, south of France, where, again, you had a Jewish king, Muslim population, and uh, and a Christian um, leadership, or not a leadership, a Christian um, judiciary. In Kazaria, That's incredible. You had, um, I mean, King Bulan, who largely is a bit of an apocryphal character, but, I mean, this is a Turkish tribe. We don't know fully why they converted to Judaism when they did around 750, but what we do know is that their entire judiciary system that was set up around having um, two Muslim judges, two Christian judges, two Jewish judges, and a pagan judge. So you had also an army that was not Jewish. The army of Khazaria was a Muslim army. And hey, isn't this remarkable, Matt? Like right now, you, you're you're obliterating a lot of misheld falsehoods about the Khazarians. Because again, yes. it falls into those people who are the Jews control everything. And this is why yes. I, I want to get the guys who, who say the Jews control everything. I want to put them in like a, a, a like a steel cage match against the guys who say that the Masons control everything versus the Illuminati controls everything versus the Catholics control everything. And then they can have a, a, a fight and see who wins. You know? <laughs> I mean, but you're you're destroying the whole entire thing about what people know about uh, about the Khazars and the Khazarians, which are a Turkic people. Yeah, uh, remarkable what you're saying. You're 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 bringing some some uh, some reality to the situation. Go ahead, Matt. I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, no, I mean, you know, and, and a lot of these things are like 
there's there's elements of truth in all of the things you just said but of course the question is always like how do you place the value within the this the structure of of causal nexuses right which, which which element leads and which follows in a dance what is reactionary what is an effect of something else what is a causal uh, motive force and this is where i think the sleights of hand come into play because there's a lot of different macro narratives um that have been created artificially over many centuries um, which litter the uh, today litters the alternative media landscape, where um, any people who tend to think outside the box, they recognize the the lies of official narratives. They will tend to then have a more open mind to sequel than what is true. And the thing is, this has been always the case, and this is why the Rothschilds themselves published some of the earliest uh, you know nineteenth century exposés of their own family's misdeeds, all of the warts. And skeletons in the closet and all. And I had a, 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 a I think I mentioned this once uh, some time ago. I had a, a, a friend, a contact, who um, was a collector of books. And he showed me this 19th century Rothschild um, expose, a big fat book. And he'd like, you know, highlighted everything. He had like bookmarks set up and all of the, the dirty stuff was in there. And uh, the irony was that the, the publishing house that published the book was a Rothschild run publishing house. So you're like, what, 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 why would the Rothschilds go and publish their own dirty closet? You know, like, so they, they know that people will seek a better, a, a more coherent, big story, exp explanatory model. And they'll set up these little nets to catch the fish that jump outside the big net. And they think then that they have like some holistic solution. And the things have just been misplaced within the, 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 the you know, within their, their, their new models. So is, are there Freemasonic operations that have been shaping history? Hell yeah. Are there Knights Templars that have uh, been playing a role? Did, did the Knights Templars that, that arose in the midst of the First Crusade uh, that were a, 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 a Manichaean um, occult sect um, within Jerusalem that was created by a, an ultramontanist grand strategist named Bernard Clairvaux? Did that exist and does that have a continued influence in in cult creation and ideologies today within intelligence circles? Yes, it does. Um, do the, are, are, is there a problem with the existence of uh, Jewish banking families? Oh yeah, I just mentioned the Rothschilds. There's Montefiore's, there's the Sassoon's, like these, there's definitely um, key families who happen to have Jewish names who have done very bad things and maintain dynastic sort of operations. But what guides what? Where is all this coming from? What are what is, what is the the causal process? And this is where I think it's important to take one of these big, broad, uh, you know, God's eye views of history. Like to take a step back and before passing judgment, just try to get a proper sense of as much history as one can possibly gather as one story, and then see well where the, what's the continuity? Because I mean, people who say, oh yeah, the Khazarias are the the source of all evil, they were the ones you know they were they were. They ran the slave trade and they were anybody who went into Kazaria, they, they were like orcs. They were like, you know, it's like you walked into Mordor and uh, they just wanted to rape and pillage. And just that's the way they were. And it's like, well, why? Why would a whole people become so bad that they just want to do that and just be evil? And then and and then these people also tend to say, oh, yeah, it is these Kazarias who infiltrated the noble monarchies of Europe. The, the monarchies themselves were good. Britain was a good monarchy. And then, and then the Kazarian Rothschilds took control, and then made the the crown their appendage, their their uh, their slave. And you know, 
it, it's again the very opposite of the the, the truth. The, the the Rothschild family, just like the Sassoons and the Montefiori's and other leading you know families who have been used as dynastic mercenaries, cannot marry up. You can actually see it in, in the the Burke's Book of Peerage. They can't marry into certain the into cer certain self-professed pure bloodlines. They're not allowed. There's a glass ceiling. Um, they're always they have the rights to use and deploy money as a weapon on behalf of a higher uh, controlling zone, but they're the ones getting their hands dirty. They're the ones receiving the hate of the masses who get victimized by the abuses of the empires. And you know when Kazari was destroyed, and we don't fully know the full story of how. We know the Mongols ended up playing a certain role in this. The Mongols being a true, like from from uh, you know Genghis Khan onward, this was something that was a weaponized grouping that was deployed and used by Venetian intelligence to crush to destroy you know uh, kingdoms of Russia, of Kiev and Rus, uh, all the way into Hungary, into Eastern Europe, down into into Baghdad, India, China. It was like. This whole process, while it was going on for so long, um, only one Western European power had full privileges to do infinite trading, unlimited trading within Venetian territories, which was the Venetians. So, you know, you got to look at, well, what the Doge, I didn't answer the question. So the Doge was at the center of the Venetian hierarchy of the structure, but the Doge didn't really have full power either. There were just the thing that maintained continuity, it was a lifelong op thing. You were voted in by one of the elect families, the, the families being the surviving families from the Roman Empire. You you had below the doge a committee of three that had full powers to execute anybody from either the committee of 10 below that or within the general population or the general senate, which involved about 2,000 members, representatives of the various, again, noble families. So the senate was not, they call it a, a like the Venetian Republic. It wasn't a republic. It was an oligarchy of the most violent character. And only the, the leading bloodlines could even be a senator. And then above the Senate, so you had the, the Committee of Ten, the Committee of Three, and then the Doge. And everybody else had high rotation, just like the Canadian Civil Service. You know, you look at the Governor General of Canada or the Lieutenant Governors. They're never in there for more than like two years. There's always rotation. The reason why this was effective compared to, let's say, Genoa, which was sort of a junior partner to Venice, also doing very similar nefarious things as a maritime empire, using also a lot of control of banking, which it continues to do to this day, um, was that Genoa had positions that you could be in um, for decades if you were a power player. And, and that made it more easy for figures who had who had a bit of an alpha complex and higher ambitions to uh, to run coups, to you know oust the head of Genoa, put themselves in play run conspiracies. So it was not as, as stable, whereas Venice, in the thousand years that it was operational from like, we're talking here, the the mid 600s, all the way until Napoleon's conquests um, in the early 18, uh, 1800s. It never had a single rebellion. It had never had a coup d'etat. It only had one attempt, maybe two, but one in, the, in like 1301, when a doge did get up, and he didn't want to follow the, the protocols of, and again, it's the, it's these uh, occult secret societies which shaped the policies overall in the continuity and shaped the guideposts of what we, what they were going to do. Only one got uppity, and within one day, he was brought out into St. Mark's Square and had his head cut off in public as a message, don't do that. And that was the only attempt. The only other attempt that I could identify was at one point 
when Charlemagne had organized through his son and some diplomats um, a coup d'etat in Venice early on before Venice was able to like sink their tentacles into uh, a controlling uh, situation. They were still more unstable in the early years. There's like 801, 802. No, no, this is 790s. And uh, Charlemagne helped orchestrate a coup where he got an allied doge to take control, the duke, um, ousting a former um, very evil character. And the duke, the doge, immediately made um, open calls to ally to break away from Byzantine, ally with Charlemagne, and asked for Charlemagne to come in militarily and take control of Venice. Now, this worked to a certain extent. Charlemagne sent his son Pepin to, to carry out this, this attack, and they took control of Ravenna, a bunch of the different uh, cities leading up to Venice. But unfortunately, uh, they got bogged down by internal operations and also a very, very devastating uh, summer in the swamps. And uh, it failed. It was basically destroyed. Charlemagne's son came back dead. It didn't work out. And that was the only attempt... <laughs> that that almost succeeded of breaking Venice away from the oligarchy. That being said, Venice was able to, um, and I'm going to go through this in my book in volume four when it does come out. We're going to go into a lot of detail on this, but Venice was able to orchestrate re religious wars out of the wazoo, not only wars in terms of utilizing their allies and their assets within the Ottoman Empire to run terror operations of conquest in European, like so-called Christian allied Christian states were taken over with the help of the Venetians. The Venice was always left alone. They always had a special a diplomatic house called the Ottoman house where they were able to convey their intelligence. They had the the, the most competent uh, global intelligence apparatus profiles. People yep. can read the Venetian uh, dispatches of the various kingdoms where they had their, their highly trained diplomats who were trained in conducting assessments of the psych profiles of uh, core target royals, their courts, where the weaknesses, they had it figured out well. And because they had maritime controls of the of the shipping routes, which they made, they got even more control after they were able to um, destroy Constantinople in the, uh, I think it was the Fourth Crusade in uh, 1402. They were able to completely wipe out Constantinople. When they did that, they then got full controls of Constantinople's shipping lanes. And uh, and they were able to use the, the, the Mongol hordes to, again, they provided, I'm sure, bountiful intelligence to these barbarians who were able to then outflank all of these, you know, different kingdoms around the world as they just spread devastation, war, and death, and rape all over the world on behalf of their Venetian controllers. They did the same thing with different aspects of the, the Ottomans at certain points. And uh, and this was the center of evil, and it was understood to be such. And people like British people, like Thomas More, a leading British patriot, uh, I should say English patriot, um, worked with people like Cardinal Morton, his uh, patron, and people like Erasmus to organize things like the League of Cambrai with allies in Italy around Machiavelli and Da Vinci um, and many other people around the, the better Medici groups who all recognize that, hey, we have to stop killing each other in these religious wars for two seconds, have a meeting, and they did. It was called the League of Cambrai. Um, I, Erasmus of Rotterdam played a key role organizing diplomatically the, the kingdoms of France, of England, of Spain, of the Holy Roman Empire, of the Vatican under Julius II, who was a corrupt, but at a certain point, he went along with that pope. Um, and they, they initiated in 1509 a final 
they stop fighting each other and realize that they're all being funded by the same bankers in Venice. And they, they went for a, a destructive, they, they, they destroyed the entire Venetian fleets in 1509. They were getting ready for a second attack to completely wipe this parasite, you know, off the face of the earth. And right before they could do that, what happens? You got a, a series of brilliantly evil diplomatic maneuvers by a desperate Venetian oligarchy to break away the Pope. You know, they, they offered him all sorts of concessions to buy up uh, album mines that were, uh, they were basically, the, the, the holy papal states had uh, a bunch of album mines and Venice agreed to pay like 10 times more than the market value and to give back all of the papal states that they had formerly taken in conquest. Um, and they were like, we'll just give, we'll give you all that. They basically threw out a big bribe to the Pope Julius and Pope Julius basically broke the, the alliance. They, he, he, with him, he took the, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Maximilian as well, who had the control of the German, you know, states. And, uh, and the whole alliance basically fell apart. And within a very short period, within months, all of a sudden, all of these allies who seemed to have their, their shit together so well were all, all of a sudden at war with France and Florence. And all were now allied with Venice against France, poor France, under Louis Twelfth and Florence which had Machiavelli's citizen armies decimated that had been so successful in taking big chunks of Venice um, in the, in the previous war period. And, uh, and that was it, you know, it was, it was wiped out and Venice sort of lived to survive or they, they lived to fight another day, but they realized how, how vulnerable their geostrategic situation was. And I mean, you know, they, they'd done a lot of work destroying alliances of nations, you know, based upon getting everybody to fight each over each other over their differences, as we saw with the destruction of the Khazaria Jew, uh, Carolingian Christian, Muslim, Abbasid, and, and Confucian Buddhist uh, Chinese worlds. That was all destroyed. That potential for a new age of brotherhood, peace, and cooperation was annihilated. The Crusades annihilated even more. But Venice realized that they were very fragile, more fragile than they realized, and they, need, they needed a new technique and a new base of operations, and they set their sights for Amsterdam and also for England as two more viable strategic centers of control. And it took them a couple hundred years to finally orchestrate their full takeover. It began under under Henry VIII, the, the, the disaster idiot son of, uh, of Henry VII. And Henry VIII was a Kabbalistic, you know, occult sex maniac who had as an advisor Francesco Zorzi, one of the key, the key leading grand strategists of Venice. A Venetian uh, monk grand strategist was a key advisor to Henry VIII, the idiot, who ended up killing uh, Thomas More. He, he cut the head off of Thomas More when Thomas More disagreed with the idea of creating a new splintered faction within the church that was already splintering up enough as it was under the Anglican church, right? Which had the, the idea of the, the monarch as the, the new Pope, the head of the church would be the monarch, which is the reason why Anglican churches today are so messed up. Go into any Anglican church, you'll see rainbows, you know, transgender events. We got a, a, a few here in Montreal, all the Anglican uh, uh, churches here, they host once a week, or the ones downtown, the most active ones, they host once a week, a uh, drag shows and cabarets in the Anglican church. You know, that's a, that, well, that's just showing the world that they're very progressive, Matthew. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was wild. Yeah, yeah it's unbelievable. So I, and the Vipers of Venice. 
and everybody fought each, fought each other. So all that so that he could get his rocks off and and you know uh, have a divorce that the that was frowned upon by the by the Vatican, who didn't really like divorces. Not that it wasn't done before; it had been done before. Kings had the power to divorce whoever they wanted. It had been done many times, actually. You didn't have to create your own synthetic subcult pseudo Christian movement to do that. You could have just simply said, I'm the king. I want to divorce um, Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. You could have said that. He didn't do it because he had, again, he was an idiot. And uh, Thomas More, again, resisted in a, in a very polite way. He didn't even say, you know, I'm totally against it. He just said, I'm not giving my consent. And he resigned. And that was enough to, to have him executed, which is a shame to Britain. It's kind of like the, the, the British Socrates moment or the, the Roman Cicero moment, you know, when Rome went along with allowing Cicero to, to have his head cut off is the, the moment where you could say Rome really lost its soul and fell deeply into becoming an empire within a few years. And it's the same thing for Athens agreeing, allowing to have one of their best people, Socrates, democratically executed uh, by those demagogues controlling the democratic party of Athens that uh, Athens lost their soul fully, and and there wasn't really a lot of chance to to regain that, despite the efforts of of Socrates' followers around Plato. Um, Athens went full empire and self destructed. Same thing for Rome; they went full empire, they self destructed, and the same thing for Britain; they went full empire. And there were some efforts, rearguard actions in the in the ensuing years. You know, he, the Renaissance process that had been awoken by people like Da Vinci, by Thomas More, by Erasmus, by all of these leading figures, it was still going, but it was it was really, really now being disturbed by increasing fights within Catholic and Protestant networks that were fighting each other. You know, Martin Luther just creates his new his new grouping in uh, fifteen seventeen, just nine years after the the League of Cambrai dissolves. You have all of a sudden Luther, who all of a sudden has his idea of just saying, well, rather than try to fight evil and expunge this, this parasite from within the Catholic church, the way Thomas More and Erasmus were trying to do. He was like, no, let's just break away. We'll have a civil war within Christianity. We'll have more splinter groups than you had the Calvinists. You had, I mean, splinter groups within splinter groups that were all committed to going to war with each other. And it turned increasingly into a bloodbath within that context. You had a, a another, you know, counter gang revolution cr created by the Habsburgs who were also in on it from the top as an inner family that created the uh, the Jesuits as sort of a sub-Templar order of a Masonic sort of, you know, using using certain techniques of self-brainwashing, deconstruction of the personality through meditations to convince their adherents that snow is black or black is white. This is what Bertrand Russell later on revived with his techniques of social engineering in the 20th century. It's really Jesuitical and it's really t uh, based upon what the Knights Templar were doing with their Kabbalistic, um, you know, techniques and the Kabbalah. Again, yes, that is part of what has organized these different Masonic groups from the Rosicrucians, which is what took over with um, Henry VIII. And like I said, Francesco Zorzi was the head of these Rosicrucians that were running the intelligence operations. They were bringing in a Kabbalistic approach to indoctrinating their elite and creating these subcults. And 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 um, mythologies of initiation that would break down the personalities of those who wanted to like find this secret knowledge knowable only to the inner elites. They would have to go through these exercises. And I mean, you guys know what the Kabbalah is, right? Yes, it's Jewish mysticism. It's basically a lot of the ancient Jewish customs mixed with the Babylonian uh, spiritism. And that's basically what it is. 
Yeah, pretty much. And it, it's all based on high symbolism and the reduction yeah. of ideas. So they took like the text of the, the Torah and they, they basically said, okay, let's just, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of the stories and ideas contained in the, in the, in the Torah. And instead we're just going to treat things like they're the sum of parts and the parts of a story are the, the, not just the words, but the, the words also have parts, which are letters. And the letters in, in the Hebrew alphabet could be either numbers or letters. They have, you know, dual meaning. And, and each letter is basically just sound. And so they would say, okay, the idea of the stories of, of, of the Pentateuch and all of the moral lessons you could get, that's just for the stupid commoners, the, the plebes. The, the initiates know that the truth is located in the sounds of the words being uttered, usually with some incense, a candle, or some psychedelics um, that would, you know, help you get into a trance-like state. And so you, you put people into situations where you create rituals for them to go through some traumatic experiences, put them into situations of, of you know, uh, again, having a, a certain controlled sensual experience with, with you know, seers uh, managing the experience of the initiate as they go through hours and days and weeks and months of just humming sounds, which all could be interpreted differently. And they're told what the interpretation is by those of the higher rung um, masters and grandmasters tell them on the way down what you just experienced and what this means to you. And as you do that, this is kind of like an MK ultra process that's being done to the minds of the people who then lose their own identities. They lose their own sovereignty and they start infusing they, their identities become now infused with a, with an idea that they are, um, divinely ordained to be instruments of a higher will that is not their own. They're, they're effectively other directed. And that's where you get now a very useful, um, approach to creating a hierarchy of, of elites, each one having cults and subcults that animate their, their identities and make them useful tools managed and deployed by actual grand masters or people, grand strategists. At the end of the day, you know, in my research, are those grand strategists at the top of the, the, the food chain actually aware of what they're doing or are, are they like fully operating on, on reason? I don't think so. I think that at the end of the day, they actually themselves believe insane shit that was created by previous generations that they now are animated by. So I, I don't think that there's re like logic in a, in a coherent sense anywhere there, although there is power and there's sophistication. I don't think that they're actually based upon any real knowledge of anything secret, um, but they do believe in their own stories and their own crap. And this is what took over. This is what took over, uh, you know, all of Europe that increasingly created the foundations for the Enlightenment, right? This, 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 I, this, people say, oh, the Enlightenment came out of the Renaissance. And it's like, no, nah, not really. Because the Enlightenment was what? It was, it was the age that, yes, it followed the Renaissance. Did that mean that the Renaissance gave birth to the Enlightenment? No, that was a political operation to try to uh, overinflate the idea of human logic replacing God. And in the Renaissance period, it, all of the, the breakthroughs in architecture, the beauty, the discoveries in music and painting, in uh, in science, were all done with the idea that man is made in the image of a loving God, that is a creative God, a living God, not a dead God. And by tapping into that sense of Jesus as a as a real divine Promethean figure who who you know died for us and and to and sacrificed himself as a martyr against the Roman empire of evil, the whore of Babylon, that, that gave people a, a special power, um, a penetrating power to tap into their higher potentials and to not accept tyranny. Now, 
the 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 enlightenment ideas of people like John Locke, Isaac Newton, Descartes, they this is not real. That, that that was basically a lot of discoveries that were made by real great creative minds that were stolen, repackaged, turned into a hollowed out shell called a formula, right? That was then associated with some autistic idiot like a like a a Newton, who we are told was a great genius because he had apples fall on his head. <laughs> And, uh, and ultimately, the human mind, we are told by this logic, is able to simply use empiricism, right, radical empiricism, take in data with your senses, find patterns, make a formula, discover a universal fact, and pass it on. No need for God, no need for the soul, no need for the divine, no need for morality, nothing of that sort. It's just an egotistical idea that humankind can replace God. And that was always a fake operation, no real discovery that was of high value ever came from that mode of thinking. And if you, you know, I, Isaac Newton's formulas might work when applied, the inverse square law works, but he didn't discover it. And, you know, if you use the method he says you have to use in his Principia to actually do science, you will not make any more discoveries. You will only be able to use like a monkey technician, you'll only be able to use what tools were given to you by others, but you'll never understand what caused the tools to come into being or how to make them better. And that was the, the great innovation of some of the leading grand strategists of Venice around this time of the great migration of evil to Britain and the creation of the British Royal Society under Charles II after the restoration of the monarchies, right? Charles II brings in um, black magic as a scientific institution in the 1680s, and that's called the Royal Society of Britain. Unbelievable. That's what Isaac Newton heads, right? He's the, he's later on the president of this thing, as well as the lead uh, uh, secretary of the Mint of the Bank of England after the Bank of England is, is created in 1694. So what they're doing in the, the, the Royal Academy of Sciences or the Royal Society of Science of, of Britain is not science. You look at all of the actual records of what they were doing. They were doing witchcraft. They were like actually doing incantations of like what, what's the best incantation to... It, put into my circle to keep the spider inside the circle or how do you like bring rainbows out of out of uh cucumbers since light went into the cucumber to make it grow these reductionists were like well thus reverse reversely we could extract the rainbows from the cucumber and they were actually trying to do this crazy stuff as, as hyper reductionists and occult uh idiots which are two sides of the same thing anybody who's a hyper reductionist becomes prey to also becoming um a mystic fool and that's what you had with Newton, who was, you know, doing a lot of black magic. Anybody trying to look for any of the hard evidence of him actually doing real science is will be hard at luck. All he was doing, and John Maynard Keynes proved this in the 1920s when he, he bought for millions of dollars all of the, this chest containing millions of pages of Newton's original handwritten works to finally figure out how did he discover gravity and the calculus and all of these things he discovered. We were going to discover, like, how he did it because he never said how he did it because he didn't do it. But they open up the chest at a press conference, and this is this is public record. They open it up, and all that's in there are millions of pages of alchemy, Kabbalistic black magic, numerology, trying to like for, figure out when will be the end of the world, the end times, using the book of Daniel and the book of Revelations. There's no science anywhere there because he never did science. He always had handlers. Right. Uh, unbelievable, man. And, and, and history, mainstream history writes it off like, oh, Isaac Newton was a good Christian man. Sure. No, no. Unbelievable. He called, he called himself Jehovah. Um, he believed yeah, he's he had another... a complex and he wanted to become, he thought he was, like he was told 
He's probably given a set of experiences that convinced them that he was this divinely ordained Yehovah character um, who's a Unitarian weirdo. And um, yeah, he had a he had a God complex himself, as did Descartes, as did Galileo. All of these guys who were directly connected to Venetian intelligence. Galileo was still receiving his paycheck by the secretary of Paolo Sarpi, who was a key grand strategist to organize this entire idea that if you can't destroy creative discoveries in science, I learned a lot, a lot of this stuff from people need to just read some LaRouche. Uh, he goes through a lot of this stuff as leads. Sure. They're like, if you can't crush the discovery, co say you like it, co-op the discovery, extract the soul of it, leave the shell, leave the description, and say that that's the science. So you try to own the interpretation of what science is if you can't destroy the science, though they would prefer to destroy the science um, at the end of the day. And that's still contaminating today's, you know, quantum mechanics. Anybody trying to talk about science today and they think that they, because they read, you know, uh, popular mechanics or, or American scientist or, or new scientist or any of these things, that they think they know science? No, all of this is just as, as contrived, controlled as the, 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 the global warming theories, COVID science, all that. Nothing is untouched. These are all garbage. Pseudoscience science with a, 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 a little taste of, of occultism around the idea of living in a multiverse with multiple dimensions and all this stuff, uh, all based upon mathematical probability theories. None of that is science. That's not how None of that is real. Works. No, none of it. It's all fake. It's all make-believe. Yeah. They create yeah. a make world that they got us to want to live in or think we have to live in and adapt to, it's not a real world. It's a fake world. It's, it's, all, it's also remarkable to me that using that, right? This, this is the danger of the elites. When you start studying these morons, right? Mm -hmm. They eventually, they create all these systems. They have all this, uh, this, this quantum physics, I mean, quantum mechanics and all this other stuff, right? And um, they create for themselves this ritualistic, occultic, uh, symbological type system for themselves as a, a as a parallel religion that their initiates believe in which is is it's just craziness to you know to start off with and we think and they fooled people into thinking that this is some sort of thing greater than what the adherents are espousing it to be meaning it's like you know it, it's like they literally created the system as parallel religion so at the end of the day they don't kill each other they belong to this club they have this parallel religion, which is all bullshit and gobbledygook. It's a mix and, and, and it's, an, it's a, a, a conglomerate of all sorts of pagan, Eastern mysticistic type of ideas. And they run with it. And people think, oh, my God, the elites believe in this. Some sort of great satanic agenda. And granted, there is some evil in this world. But God almighty, these people are not gods, folks. They're not yeah, gods. We, we give them way too much credit. Way, way too, too much credit, credit man. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, I, I've, I've spoken to people who were telling me, you know, like very, very educated people, alternative media voices, uh, who were telling me their thoughts that, yeah, the, because the oligarchy talks about how they will be, will be able to hack, uh, DNA and hack the mind, um, with nano, nanobots. It's, it's all bullshit. It's all like, reductive yeah, bullshit. I know. And they're like, AI, you know, the power. biggest marketing scam is AI. There's, yeah. there's no such fucking thing as AI. There never will be AI. It, it, no, it, it can't happen. No, exactly. Okay. Like you said, well, garbage in, like, garbage out. Do you remember this whole study they did where they had two computers and there's like they, we two scientists lined up two AI computers and they started communicating together and they started to hate humanity. And people are like and the un, and, and, and and the dupes in the audience were like, Wow, 
See, That's AI so is real. Elon is right. We must stop AI. No, AI is not real. What happens with AI, computer A was programmed with a limited program, because it's limited because a man made it, right? A limited program with all the prejudices of the programmer put into there. Computer B was the same thing. So, of course, computer A and B are going to talk to each other, and they're going to conclude that humanity sucks. Why? Because their creators think that mm. humanity sucks and needs to be wiped out and needs to be replaced by machines. Of course, they're going to have a bias. There's no – that's the, the mythology. And the, the, these are the dangers that we're falling into in modern world. AI, and, and we're going to hack DNA. You, they're not going to hack anything. It's unbelievable. Yeah. No, I, I know. I, I mean, it's <clears> – <throat> One of the things I, I got this across at a, a fr I was having a conversation uh, the other day, and um, when you read Frederick Douglass, it, it's it's insightful because Douglass makes the point that the slave masters of the Confederate South, you know, Douglass was a freed slave, he freed himself, and he became an advisor to Lincoln. But he makes the point that the 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 biggest problem with the slaves was that. The, there, it was a cultural problem. The slaveryness was located primarily in the soul. That's where the poison had leaked. So even when you freed them physically or you offered them an, an, a way to escape, more often than not, the response would be, no, I'd rather stay here. This is where my, my comfort is. And uh, they would often be afraid because certain house slaves who were on the inside who had privileges were um, used by the slave master to infuse fear into their fellow slaves who were in the working the fields and they would spread gossip like the different ways that the the masters had divine powers to watch them and so if they ever tried to go for for freedom they would be they would be immediately foiled by these divine powers and they would describe the the torture chambers you know like what master has is all of these torture devices in their basement and if you try anything you will you know have the worst uh, experience of having your bowels removed and everything and um and just that cycle that that psychological castration through fear and this this mythology was enough to get them to want to stay within their their comfort zone even though it was not a very comfortable lifestyle so it's very much the same thing today i mean there's a lot of effort to just paint the picture of just how much power the oligarchy has what sort of magical transhumanist powers they have over everything so ultimately you're rendered psychologically spiritually impotent you can't think creatively you can't recognize any resistance from like russia or china or india or iran it doesn't even exist to you it's all no. just different sides of the same macro god like god cartel of evil luciferian gods that control everything and there's no hope except for maybe thinking a little get off the grid become a get a off the grid yeah, yeah. Become a go to your. Uh, well, I've been saying it since 2012, Maddie. It, it, it's not the time for you to go into your basement, go into your bunker, and eat cat food. That's not the strategy here, you know. And that's what they do. They make you feel like there are gods. These gods, folks, you seen how powerful they were when when they were running out of Afghanistan, and Afghani's were holding onto a, a plane. You see how powerful these gods are and how their plans are imploding in Europe, in the running of the United States, in the failure of trying to take down Russia and China and the One Belt, One Road Initiative, the multipolar world and how that's emerging. These people are not gods. They have convinced you. This is like Plato's cave. They have convinced you 
their gods. But they're nothing but men. And not only men, they're the lowest caliber. They're weak, servile, inbred, miscreant, psychopathic men. Yeah, my, my friend uh, Quan, he uh, introduced me to the term uh, cacistocratic. So we live under a cacistocracy, which is really just it, ruled by the worst, right? <laughs> that's so exactly what it is. Qualified worst people are what rule. And that's exactly what it is. And these the only useless eaters. There are useless eaters on this earth, but they're not the people that are targeted. The useless eaters are people like those unqualified, unskilled, useless uh, blue bloods in the form of these royals and their minions and flatterers and care, you know, hanger honors and managers who have no real world useful skills whatsoever. They live entirely in their headspace, in their imagination. They're un they're and imagination is a fine, powerful thing. This is what is, is one of the key points of our creativity when we're when we're acting in a healthy human, natural, you know, mature way. We have an we have our our, our imagination, which can conceptualize non-existent things that don't like the future doesn't exist yet we access the future through our imagination we access our idea of the past we imagine concepts uh, right we and and so it's a very powerful thing we imagine things that could be as solution concepts to problems but it has to be organized by morality conscience and reason when it is yeah. disassociated with those other very fundamental components of the human condition you tend to create a perverse monster this this thing that just creates um, ivory tower states of ideas of what the future is that have no bearing in how the universe actually works, no respect or obedience to the discoverable laws of elementary reality. And they just impose, they expect the entire universe to contort itself and fit into their perverse model of what reality should be, whether it's standard model cosmology, atomic physics, whether it's behaviorists trying to manage a great reset and corral everybody into this like idealized utopic state of 1 billion people living in, you know, harmony in a garden of Eden, where we're all back to the purity of Oompa Loompa Hobbit nature with a, you know, only a few guardians controlling the shadows from above, which is really what they want is a, is a restoration of that garden of Eden, except the figure of the God character in the garden of Eden story is the oligarchs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they play both, you know, so it doesn't work and they delude themselves. They become the worst possible people like Prince Philip. I'm sure Prince Charles could have been wonderful, good souls. If they'd been given a different set of opportunities and experiences uh, growing up after, you know, when they were two years old, I'm sure they, they, they had access to a lot of potential that just got diminished and diminished and diminished. The more they spent time in that corrupt, insidious, poisonous culture that was always designed to destroy their inner directedness and replace it with an other directedness which is the, the disasters that we have today with these royals who just are, are controlled by their libidos, right? In the worst possible way imaginable and have no real ability to think for themselves even. It's, it's pathetic. And they can't understand why Russia, China, you know, all of these countries that have come out of the SCO conference with a very powerful new alliance for a multipolar uh, age of mankind. This is a really, this is on another level. People don't realize yeah. that this is humanity <clears throat> reclaiming its destiny properly because the policies of the Belt and Road Initiative, of, this, of the concept of the security uh, architecture that is being brought online by these different civilizational forces representing Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Confucian, Hindu, Sikh, all of these different civilizational forces, just like in the, the days of Charlemagne and Harun al-Rashid and the Tang Dynasty and Khazaria, 
You have a new type of process. We've not seen this in a thousand years of civilizational forces working on common themes of brotherhood, common interest, win-win cooperation, and the idea of ab abiding by the universal laws of the universe on every domain that matters. So that's that's what's happening right now. I mean, it's it's a very bright and positive thing, but it's it's also important to hold the the in mind the level of of desperation and sociopathy of this occult fanatical uh, death cult, which is yeah. trying to manage our part of the world. And they really the whole world is what they want to manage manage, but they can't have that. So they're having temper tantrums now, which could get messy, but. Overall, you shouldn't be demoralized by this. The overarching <laughs> trend for humanity right now is a new renaissance process and the discovery of what our actual destiny is, which is good. Absolutely. So. Matt, Matthew, very well said, man. And, and you know, I've said this so many times to the audience here on Rogue. You don't need to fear these Western elites. They're too stupid. They're too inbred. They're dumb as hell. Okay? And they're deviant and disgusting. They're a bunch of child-raping pedophiles, right? Don't worry about their what their master plan is, what they're going to do. Worry that in their incompetence that they break things. That's the only concern I have, is in their gross incompetence that they break systems that were created long ago that great men once created. Now it's been given into the hands of morons, and we're seeing the breaking of that world. But the multipolar world exists, and it's here. It is fully birthed. We in the West just need to wake up and see it. Amen. Matthew Eric, thank you so much for joining us, folks. He is the man, the myth, the legend, the brain trust himself. Get yourself a geopolitical, geostrategic, historical education. Get over to the CanadianPatriot.org. Get onto the RisingTideFoundation.net. Subscribe to his Substack. Buy his books. And when you go to the RisingTideFoundation.net or CanadianPatriot.org, when you sign up with your email, you're given alerts, notifications, and uh, Matthew and his wife, Cynthia, they run weekly symposiums uh, on Telegram and Zoom calls and whatnot. Very important for you to get involved. Okay, you, you, Look, if you're not aware of Rogue, you're not aware of CanadianPatriot.org and Rising Tide Foundation, Matthew and the work that he does, you would think you're alone. You know, you would think that you're just uh, the only strategy left for you is to eat cat food and go into your bunker and wait for the SWAT team to come through the door. That's not living, folks. That's not living. There's a greater world out there. Wake up, get your head out of your ass, and embrace it. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. CJ, take it away.